Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Buck Habrichter, Managing Editor of the War Room and your host today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Many of us in military and government service have traveled the world representing our nation, but it's a relatively small number that can say they made it to the top and the bottom of the world. That's just what Dr. Michelle Devlin has recently accomplished. Michelle Devlin is Professor of Environmental Security at the U.S. Army War College and Professor of Arctic Health and Human Security with the National Science Foundation's UNI Arctic Center. She is a doctor of public health, registered nurse, and emergency medical technician. Dr. Devlin's primary specialty areas include the circumpolar human terrain of the high north, environmental migrants, civil military response to climate disasters, indigenous populations, and cross-cultural engagement with diverse and underserved populations. Those qualifications make her the perfect person to travel to Antarctica, and she took us along for the ride. Armed with a list of questions and her trusty iPhone, Michelle recorded her thoughts, her responses, and impressions as she traveled to the Antarctic continent. Before we get started on part two of this episode, I want to clarify something. Since part one was released, we've been asked by many people, how did Michelle get the War College to pay for this trip? The answer is she didn't. This wasn't some sort of government-sponsored boondoggle. This was a commercial adventure tour that she paid for with her own money. That's how dedicated to her craft she is. She used personal vacation time and her own money to travel nearly halfway around the world to satisfy her desire to understand the polar regions. With that info in mind, in part one, we left Dr. Devlin sharing her impressions and emotions as she had recently arrived on the Antarctic continent. Michelle, welcome back to A Better Peace. So as we stated, this is part of an adventure tour group. Uh, there are plenty of other like-minded people there with you. You've told us your impressions and, and, and emotions as you stepped on Antarctica. Uh, can you tell us what some of these other people are saying and doing as they're going through the same experience with you? Yes, it's been quite interesting. We are all sharing notes and sharing reactions to this incredible experience of traveling in Antarctica and being on the ground on the continent. And the overwhelming, in fact, I would say not just majority, but almost virtually everyone you talk to, the words they use to describe the experience in Antarctica and what they're seeing and witnessing, they use these kinds of words like magnificent, stupendous, impossibly beautiful, you know, these, these kinds of things. And they all indicate a general feeling of being completely overwhelmed by the reality of what is here in the South Pole area and in Antarctica. They are overwhelmed by its beauty, by its power, by its strength, by its fragility, by its vulnerability, by its massive size. It just blows everyone away and puts a number of us in tears with its... <laughs> you know, just this incredible beauty. And, and the main takeaway that everybody was saying is we can't describe it. There literally are no words in, in English, in uh, Spanish, in French, in Hebrew, in Tagalog, in many of the other languages that I'm with folks that I'm surrounded with here. 
we can't put it into words. There are just no words to describe what a remarkably, incredibly overwhelming type of experiences is and to see Antarctica. I definitely recommend that if you get a chance to go visit, I, I recommend getting involved in, uh, you know, environmental issues to help protect it and help keep it what it is. Because we, we I, I think everyone just needs to go to Antarctica. They need to see it. They need to experience it. It will overwhelm you. It will transform you. And you'll have an incredible understanding of what it means to be a citizen of the world, not just of our country, not just of our nations, but of the world. It sounds like one of those unifying events that, that not many people get to experience in their life that kind of transcends languages and cultures. Uh, can you tell us what was, what was one of the highlights of, uh, of your trip there? I would say one of the, the really most amazing things uh, that we did was camp out in Antarctica, uh, we set up a number of different tents on an island uh, right off, off, off the coast of Antarctica, part of Antarctica, but just a little mile or so off the coast, had it to ourselves with a group of people and we set up tents and uh, basically slept the night with penguins and seals and sea lions surrounding us. And as we look from either direction of the tents and of the campground, you see the Southern Ocean uh, here and icebergs all over, small, large, some even larger than the ship that we came in on. So it's absolutely an incredible experience. Um, maybe a tiny bit reminds me, you know, of, you know, honoring uh, Ernest Shackleton and all and Scott and Amundsen and all the other great uh, you know, great polar explorers uh, here in the southern part of the world. So it's a lot of fun. You've already impressed upon us several times just how extreme Antarctica is, whether it be the temperatures or the remoteness, the barrenness and desolation. Uh, obviously, that, that doesn't come without some sort of dangers, hazards. Can you explain some of the challenges or issues that you experienced while you were there? Yes, I think it's very important to remember that anytime you're doing work up in either the northern polar region or the south pole region, you are dealing obviously with the world's most extreme environments. Essentially, you need to remember that everything around you wants you dead, <laughs> wants to kill you. It, it is a lesson I learned up in the American high north and certainly is even more more true down in the South Pole region. Um, and while we were on this trip in Antarctica, we had, you know, of course, a number of things that, that happen, uh, you know, that are, you have to be very careful with. Uh, one of them was when we were camping, uh, everything looked fine, of course, on the weather reports. There was no, you know, no expectation that we'd have bad weather and people were setting up camp out of one of the islands. And, you know, really within a matter of minutes, the weather changed and we had pouring rain. And so everyone got very drenched, even though they had clothes that were technically waterproof. They just, you know, ultimately were not strong enough against the rain and tents and other gear got very wet and we had no boat to take us out of that situation for another half day and so basically people were sleeping in ice cold water and many people starting to get very very uh chilled and and you know 
their body heat was lowering and so definitely could have turned out to be a very serious situation. Um, we also on a different day, while a number of us were right along the shore of a particular area in Antarctica, um, it was very hot. It was actually running more like in, in the 40s and 50s even in temperature and there were many glaciers that were calving, you know, parts of them were breaking off because they were taking direct heat on a very brilliantly blue day, you know, bright day. And a large, large piece of a glacier happened to calve and fall off uh, very close to where we were, probably within, you know, several hundred feet. And it made what is called a, you know, tsunami, which can happen not just from a typhoon or hurricane, but from a large piece of a glacier falling into water. And it created very, uh, uh, significant tsunami. It came rolling onto the beach within minutes where our group was staying and walking around and everyone had to escape very quickly up the hill and get away of that get away of that. And unfortunately, some of the visitors had a lot of their gear bags right down on the gravel beach and they could not get to those gear bags in time. And the, we had two or three bouts of heavy waves of, you know, tsunami, glacier tsunami waves that washed their gear out into the sea. And that was an issue, not just because they were losing gear, but of course it's Antarctica and that's considered a form of pollution. You cannot leave that stuff floating around and unattended. So we had to have someone else go out there and one of the, uh, expedition leaders went out and had to gather up all of those floating gear bags and life vests that inflated when they hit water and all of this stuff. So that was crazy. And then uh, actually the near the very end of our trip uh, on the very last day, you know, we planned our the expedition leaders plan for all kinds of contingencies. Uh, one of the things you often don't think about is what if the vessel itself, the ship itself, is unable to sail and unable to move? And sure enough, we did have that happen. And we were essentially stranded on our ship for about 12 hours because the steering mechanism in, in the boat, in the ship, went out and had a severe, uh, significant mechanical problem. So it took the engineers on board the ship a good 12 to, um, I don't know, 14, 15 hours to try to figure out what was happening with the steering mechanism and how to repair that and get that fixed. And so we were basically just floating in the Waddell Sea there waiting uh, for help. And of course, in the, that type of extreme environment and the great remoteness of the area, there is no one to help you. It could be days and days, if not weeks before, uh, you know, another vessel could show up to assist in terms of evacuating people off. And, and also it actually uh, was very, very concerning when it was happening. And luckily, again, the uh, engineers on board were able to get the steering mechanism going and we were able to lift up anchor and uh, take off beyond the Antarctic Sound and head back through the Drake Passage up north to Patagonia again. At this point, Michelle began the long trip home and as she began to slowly decompress, uh, she was able to share some thoughts with us. Michelle, why don't you give us some of the takeaways from this trip? Well, after about two weeks traveling to and from Antarctica and spending a number of days on the continent and in the Waddell Sea, we are heading back now to South America. And in fact, we are almost uh, in the Beagle Channel again in southern uh, Tierra del Fuego. And in terms of, uh, I think, the takeaways that I would 
have to share. Um, when I lived up in the Arctic, above the Arctic Circle recently, I, I felt very much like the Arctic was living on the moon. It was that strange and that amazing and that fascinating. This is a whole nother level. I think being in Antarctica is like being on Mars. It, it still just takes my breath away. It is exquisite. Um, as Roald Amundsen, one of my favorite polar explorers said <laughs> a century ago, um, it's just untrodden and forgotten, but it's a fairy tale land. In all of our conversations, you regularly reference space. You compare the Arctic to space. You, you, you've now compared Antarctica to Mars. There's obviously a connection. Can you expand on that, on the connection between Antarctica and humans in space in the future? Oh, definitely. That's one of my favorite strategic, long-range strategic questions related to environmental security. Um, something to consider when we take a look at trying to prepare spacecom personnel and other human, humans, civilian humans, how do we actually ultimately learn how to live long-term in space? Well, some of the issues to consider from a training ground would be that Antarctica is the best place to learn and experience what the ultimate in extreme weather is like. And as I uh, mentioned previously, Antarctica is the continent that has the highest wind speeds. It has the lowest, most extreme temperatures. And those are the types of conditions that we would need to better understand about survival if we're going to be sending people into space long term on a regular basis. Uh, they would also have to learn in space how to deal with prolonged darkness and isolation. And that is exactly what Antarctica is about, uh, certainly during certain months of the year. Uh, it's, and at this point, it still remains the most isolated of all continents on Earth. So again, another great training area for spacecom and fu future operations. Certainly the importance of being self-sufficient as a community. You know, where do you get your resupply materials from? How do you function? Uh, things like growing food. You're not going to be flying in food to Antarctica or fruits and vegetables. Okay, so how do you grow your own food? What are you actually going to be eating long-term in Antarctica as a training area for space, right? And, and then also the issue of health. How do you maintain people's health when they're in extremely remote conditions you know, what do you do for medical care? What do you do for mental health? How do you maintain a healthy mindset when you're so far away from home? You cannot communicate easily. How do you actually maintain your well-being when you're that far from home in what seems to be a very, you know, foreign-looking environment? It's, it feels often like you live on another planet. Uh, you know, how do you, again, how do you grow your food? What do you do for fresh water? What do you do with waste, human waste? What do you do with equipment that you're no longer using? What do you do with all of that stuff? So Antarctica, amazingly, is a terrific location to start thinking of these issues more systematically and researching them and really trying to understand what some of the barriers are to long-term regular human life on other planets and space calm activities. Antarctica can be a great teacher to us all. One of the other major themes we've talked about in our conversations about your trip has been the impact of climate change in the region. Uh, you, I'll take you back to a conversation when you were in Ushuaia where you were talking to some local residents and, and they relayed how 
impactful climate change had been at a very, very personal level for them. Can you explain that again? And it was uh, very interesting. I was part of a conversation right now with some of the local uh, residents of the town, and uh, they brought up the subject of climate change in their community because I am surrounded by these incredibly stunning uh, Andean uh, mountain peaks here around the harbor. Very, very beautiful, but relatively free of snow. And the locals were explaining how, as the climate has been warming over the past few decades that they've lived here, the uh, snow season, the winter season, has become shorter. It typically would run from maybe April through October, but now, you know, it may be you know, more May or June and just for a few months, so not as long. And indeed, a lot of these mountains are barren. And then the uh, one of the local residents was talking about how many of the people are concerned about uh, losing their source of fresh water here in Ushuaia as the local glaciers are melting. And in fact, as we speak here, I'm staring at the main glacier that provides fresh water to the town of Ushuaia. There's another one a bit farther away, but the main one right here over that overlooks downtown. And uh, frankly, there's very little left of it. And uh, the local residents were saying that they'd heard reports that within about 10 years or so, uh, as the climate continues to warm, that they anticipate that that glacier will no longer be able to provide uh, fresh drinking water to the residents here. So as you can see, the issue of climate change is enhanced the further you get into these polar regions uh, where they become much more severe and, and are talked about on a very uh, open basis, on, on a very frequent basis. So Michelle, you've given us two very real practical impacts of climate change in this region. First, you talked about the, the glacier calving and flooding your beach and carrying away everyone's belongings. And then you told us about Ushuaia and the, the water shortage that they potentially face in the next decade. Can you extrapolate that out to a greater global impact as to how these regions affect everyone in the world? Because these polar regions, both north and south, are, are critical to uh, currents, wind uh, patterns, you know, these types of meteorological events that really keep the rest of us in balance on Earth. And now that the North and South Pole are very much affected by climate change, we need to be aware of this. We need to understand and understand on the ground what is going on and how this is impacting us. Uh, it, it's really creating a brand new geostrategic picture for us within the military, within security forces. So pull that thread, bring it all home for us now. How does all of this local, regional, global change impact environmental security? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there are a number of important uh, things, issues going on to consider from a climate change standpoint and how this is impacting Antarctica and impacting the broader world and security and stability issues. And it's uh, very interesting. Well, I would, I would say that, for, first of all, we have, as you know, climate change challenges going on all over the world, but they are happening in different parts of the world at different times and at different levels. Antarctica, as well as the Arctic up north, so those two polar regions, uh, unfortunately, are serving as the canaries in the coal mine, as are some of the Pacific Island atolls. 
um, you know, way out there that are flat in the Pacific, places like the Marshall Islands and others. So these are the areas of the world where we're seeing the most rapid and most significant changes due to the climate warming, you know, as we look over a period of time. And of course, with Antarctica, we're very, very concerned about the rapid loss of a number of ice sheets that hold glaciers in place behind them. So to the extent that ice sheets in Antarctica are warming very rapidly, are calving into the ocean and going away, that does a number of things. It changes the uh, salinity, right, uh, because of the ice sheets being clear and not having salt in them really it changes you know you get fresh water mixing with ocean water below it and that can affect the ecosystem and a number of different issues uh overall globally we worry about these ice sheets melting and letting the glaciers uh you know come through behind them because we literally can flood the world <laughs> it, i mean it would it would do great damage of course to places like in the pacific um, certainly would do great damage if you're looking at maybe 10, you know, 10 feet or more sea level rise, depending at what time, you know, down the road, uh, the acceleration just becomes so quick. We could see many coastal towns become uninhabitable, ports, harbors, areas like that, land areas right along, uh, you know, the coast in many different countries could be impacted. I mean, you use even the case of... Um, California, let's say I'm a native Californian. So you ultimately, if these ice sheets completely melt and flood out, you could have coastal communities wiped out, of course, but also even inland communities. So if you take the case of Sacramento in California, right, certainly not by the ocean, but they do have many low-lying rivers that connect ultimately down to the ocean, let's say. So those kinds of waterways would fill up with water over time and again bringing a lot of these challenges directly to uh, communities that might not even think that they could would be infected by sea level rise as an example um, you know we're obviously seeing changes in the ecosystem and I, I talked a bit about that during this session with you how um, you know more rain instead of snow as things warm up rain can be a very damaging element in a place like Antarctica because you've got animals, ecosystem there with penguins and others sitting on nests and, and different creatures that rely on the current temperatures or previous temperatures to function. But you have running water, running rainwater, it can damage their nest, it can damage their ability to reproduce, and, and it can damage, uh, you know, their source of food and other things become affected. And so this is a problem as well, let alone melting permafrost or, you know, anything like that. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a doctor of public health by background, a global public health person. So we always get concerned about areas up north in the circumpolar world, up in the North Pole area, and then the uh, South Pole, where we could be uh, exposing ourselves to new bacteria, viruses, different things that we don't even know about or think about as these parts of the world become exposed and they melt, all right? And certainly up north, we look at issues like anthrax, okay, in bodies of dead uh, caribou, for instance, that have been buried, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, or whatever, under ice and now are becoming exposed. So we have a lot of those concerns as well about uh, the South Pole area 
And, you know, and I'm looking actually right at uh, moss and lichen and different plants that are, you know, growing and that are under, you know, under these ice sheets as they melt. Um, so we worry about that. We worry about permafrost melting and releasing methane and, and, you know, just contributing to all of these gases that warm up the earth. So th- those are all certainly important. Much of what you've talked about is the impact of the environment on humans as it changes. Uh, do you, can you talk about what humans' impact on the environment might be as we see increasing changes in both polar regions? Uh, for us, from a security standpoint, uh, one of the biggest challenges we have, of course, is that as the North and South Pole melt, they become more accessible to exploitation, certainly to development, but to true exploitation, environmental crimes, uh, issues of you know mining, for instance, mining, drilling, things like that, that other countries may be focusing on, may be hoping that they'll have an opportunity to do that type of thing. We certainly are concerned about the Russians and Chinese up north in uh, the Arctic Ocean area and those uh, the countries up in that part of the world. But we're worried about these same challenges too down in, south, uh, in the South Pole. Because again, as that continent melts and as more of it becomes accessible, you know, there's a potential for other countries to try to use lawfare or other mechanisms to break treaties or find a foothold in. Because, of course, you know, if you can get a presence on the continent, uh, you have a better uh, chance potentially down the road, maybe, of arguing that you should be able to do what you want to do on that part of the continent. Sometimes those treaties do not hold up and are subject to a lot of debate and argument and can completely be reformed. Uh, and the continents of us, you know, Antarctica could potentially in the future down the road, decades down the road, may no longer be this magnificent sanctuary for scientific research and to study, you know, study the world. So we're very, very concerned about that. The Russians and the Chinese both have been uh, involved in activities in Antarctica. We do see a, a growing interest by those two nations in Antarctica. Of course, it's in a very strategic location near, a, you know, the Drake Passage and these other seas around it. So very concerning with that, you know, destruction of the ecosystem. And then, um, you know, we're even, uh, it's quite interesting. I do a lot of work on climate migration the push factors and the pull factors and why people come and go to certain areas in their own country and around the world. Well, uh, there's an issue of what we call uh, EDP, uh, environmentally displaced persons. We anticipate by 2050, for instance, there may be a quarter million to, uh, excuse me, a quarter billion, even up to one billion people environmentally displaced from their homes because of significant climate damage and and change that's going on. So I've been looking at this issue pretty closely. We are actually already seeing climate and weather patterns pushing people away from their homes and seeking out opportunities in other parts of the world for employment. So climate can be a migration amplifier and we definitely saw that up north when I lived in, in uh, above the Arctic Circle and up in northern Alaska. You have not just the indigenous population, but you've got probably, for instance, 10% of the North Slope area in general is made up of people that work there that are coming in from Pacific Islands like Hawaii, the Tonga, Samoans, 
uh, you know, other nationalities, and they are come, they are being recruited and pulled in to work legally in the Arctic. Interestingly, here in uh, Antarctica, uh, the uh, tourism is actually a major source of uh, human movement uh, into Antarctica. And sure enough, when you look at the actual workers who are doing a lot of the general labor that goes along with dealing with tourism, you are seeing a lot of these same populations, even in Antarctica. Uh, in fact, I'm surrounded by fantastic uh, staff and crew from the Philippines and other nations as well. But they are, they are functionally very active down here in Antarctica already. All right, Michelle, last question for you. This has obviously been a... An incredible trip for you. Uh, how does this coming back to Carlisle now impact your day job? What sort of opportunities, what sort of partnerships and collaboration do you see for the War College, the Army, for the greater DOD? Uh, how does this all apply to what you do for a, for a living these days? Yeah, it was really uh, terrific as I was, you know, spending this time down in Tierra del Fuego, you know, the southern part and Patagonia, the southern part of Argentina and, and, and Chile, and then with Antarctica itself and being on the continent there. I think we have incredible opportunities to learn and to partner with and collaborate with other faculty, other researchers, other, you know, brain trust kinds of organizations and consulting groups that function in this part of the world in the South Pole. Uh, I think it's important that the U.S. Army and the broader military writ large learn how to function and operate successfully in the North Polar region, in the Circumpolar region, and in the Arctic at the same time, I believe we need to be looking simultaneously at what is happening in the South Pole, in Antarctica, uh, the competition from uh, you know, China and Russia and that part of the world as well, and other entities, and what can we do to learn about all of this. So there are certainly colleges and institutions down in southern, uh, southern South America that we could be partnering with who focus on Antarctica, and that's their priority uh, academically. Of course, the National Science Foundation and other major scientific institutions do work on the ground in Antarctica. I think there are opportunities for us as well to get involved with some of those research projects, certainly from an environmental uh, security standpoint. There's a lot of interest in that. Uh, I'd love to see faculty uh, exchanges going on back and forth between the Army War College and maybe some of these universities here in the Patagonia area in Chile and Argentina, New Zealand, Australia, and other parts of the world that uh, have always been very close to the continent of Antarctica, even though it's not been a priority location for us within the United States. Uh, I would lo I'd love to see, for instance, a war college doing more trips, doing more tours, uh, regional study types of tours, uh, and taking our students and faculty both up to the Arctic and the North Polar region, as well as to Antarctica. I know that West Point, I believe, for a number of years has been running uh, some very uh, very exciting trips for their cadets down to Antarctica. And I have heard from my colleagues at West Point that they, those students consider that to be the most transformative experience of their lives. So, you know, we may be able to work similar programs like that with our students so they really understand not just the North Pole, but the South Pole as well, and how important it is to 
to recognize that those regions of the world are changing rapidly because the globe is warming, they are melting. We're seeing lots of significant environmental security concerns in both parts of those polar areas. And so I, I would definitely encourage us to be partnering, collaborating and traveling and understanding polar environmental security issues by actually being on the ground in those parts of the world. These, these areas, the North Pole and the South Pole and their regions are so remote and so extreme and so poorly understood, <laughs> you know, from a research standpoint, uh, we have a lot to learn, we have a lot to understand, and we have to start doing that by being on the ground. We can understand it some from books and lectures and paper, but nothing compares to actually being in these locations on earth and, and feeling them and seeing them and touching them and, and hearing them. And it really helps understand, uh, bring, bring forth these environmental security issues much more vividly. Well, thank you again to Dr. Michelle Devlin for taking us along on this incredible trip. Uh, it, uh, it was, it was a first for us as to how we were actually able to accomplish this. And we're very pleased that we were able to share some of her experiences with you along the way. And if you find yourself in Carlisle anytime soon, be sure to check out the Army War College Polar Bears. It's a student and faculty community of interest on Arctic and environmental security issues, and we look forward to seeing how Michelle intends to incorporate her new Antarctica experience into that curriculum as well. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this episode and send us suggestions for future episodes. Please subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice and rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Buck Haberichter. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.